We are on Yevamos Kufyud Beis Omen Aleph, the middle of 112a, as we will be concluding this chapter, this parak, the 13th chapter, as we are moving along through Yevamos. And so now, the end of this chapter, we'll discuss the third section of the Mishnah. We started a new Mishnah uh, in this week's recording, um, and there were three different parts of the Mishnah. The first part of the Mishnah discussed... M- uh, yibum in the context of minors, of children under the age of 12 or 13. The second part of the Mishnah uh, discussed what happens when she makes the claim that uh, they never actually did Yibam, they never had sexual relations, even if they're living with it under the same roof, in the same uh, in the same house. Uh, but she makes the claim that they never had performed Yibam. So what happens? Do we believe her? Do we believe him? Uh, that was the second part. Now the third part, is what happens if she takes an, a vow uh, that she will not get any benefit from her brother-in-law. Um, and so the Mishnah says that, well, if she did that during the time, the lifetime of while she was still married, while the husband was still alive, uh, so then the reason for this vow was because uh, she doesn't like her brother-in-law for whatever reason, uh, but it wasn't specifically to get out of Yibam. So if that's the case, so then... We say once the husband passes away, she was it wasn't because she had her brother-in-law in mind with regards to Yibam, and so therefore we force the brother-in-law to do Chalitza because they really can't do Yibam based on the vow that she took. However, if her intention, either when she took this vow during uh, her marriage with her husband while the husband was alive, or or if it took place clearly afterwards, but it's clear that her intention is to, to get out of Yibam, so that's improper. Uh, she shouldn't be doing that, and so therefore we don't force the brother-in-law, uh, to do to do chalitza, because what she did was improper, but we ask of him to do chalitza, because uh, she basically uh, removed herself from ever doing yibam, and so therefore we ask of the brother-in-law to do chalitza. So the Gemara will get back to this Mishnah, uh, as we'll see towards the end of this Gemara. <coughs> Excuse me, but the way the Gemara gets to our Mishnah is really through a different Mishnah, which is found in a different tractate really towards the end of the Tractate of Nadarim. Um, so it has the following discussion. And it's an interesting discussion about, also about, uh, related to, to the last recording, about uh, when do we believe her, when do we not believe her. Uh, so we have three different scenarios where she tries to get out of a marriage. Nothing really at this point to do with Yibam. But we have a, a couple that's married, and she is basically making a certain claim, and with that claim, she's leaving the marriage. So let's see these three different claims that she can make. In general, she's not able to leave. She can't, according to uh, the Torah, uh, he has to be the one, the husband has to be the one who gives the divorce document, gives the get, uh, and he could even give it against her will. However, she doesn't have that ability to end the marriage. But with these three claims, potentially, she has the ability to uh, to get out of the marriage. Um and essentially force the husband to give a divorce document. So let's see what these three claims are and whether or not we believe her. Tanan Hasam, it is taught in that Mishnah, originally they said that these three claims she's believed on. What are these three claims? Not only is she believed, uh, but she even receives her ksuba, meaning it's not even her fault. Uh, there are certain cases where she makes a certain claim where it uh, ends up being that she's the one that's trying to get out of the marriage and it's her fault, so then she doesn't receive... The ksuba money, the money that the husband uh, promised to give if they were to get divorced and end the marriage, um, or through his death, 
but in in general, we say that there are cases where she's believed that she doesn't receive it because it's her fault. In this case, she she makes a certain claim and she also receives the ksuba money. She also receives this money from her husband after they get divorced. What are these three claims? So claim number one is ha'omer t'me'anilach. It's specifically in the context of a woman who's married to a Kohen. They're married to a Kohen, so she makes the claim that she was essentially raped. So if she was raped, in general we say that uh, she's allowed to stay married to her husband. That's not, a, it's not an issue. However, the only exception is when she's married to a Kohen. When she's married to a Kohen, any time uh, she has sexual relations, even if it was done unwillingly, she has to uh, get divorced. Uh, because a Kohen is uh, not, not because she did anything wrong. Uh, God forbid we would never say such a thing. But uh, the Kohen has to be married to somebody where um, it's uh, just like they can't marry somebody who's divorced. Uh, and she didn't do anything wrong by getting divorced. So so, so too, she has, he has to be married to somebody who uh, was um, uh, was only having sexual relations with him. And if she was uneven, even if she was raped, so then... Uh, they would have to get divorced. Uh, and so she makes such a claim. There are no witnesses. We don't have any witnesses, but she just made her claim. So then she's believed. We'll explain why she's believed uh, momentarily. But initially, they said she's believed. Case number two is Hashemayim b'ni levencha, that uh, uh, she makes the claim that um, that either, there's different ways of understanding this, either that the husband is no longer having sexual relations with her, and so she wants out of the marriage, or even if they're having sexual relations, but uh, there's something wrong uh, that's taking place, or she doesn't have the ability, he's, or he's not trying to uh, allow her to become pregnant, uh, to have kids. And even if uh, she doesn't have an obligation to have kids, perhaps the obligation is only on the on the on the husband and not on the wife. But she wants to have kids, and so she's making the claim that uh, through their the act of sexual relations, he's doing it in such a way where she cannot have kids. Or she's just making the claim that uh, he's he's never having uh, sexual relations with her. And so therefore she wants out. We believe her for that. And she can collect her ksuba because she's not doing anything wrong. He is. And finally, the last uh, claim that she makes where we believe her, again, all of this is without any witnesses, is Nutulani min hayyuhudim. She makes the claim that um, she basically takes, uh, takes an oath to say that she's no longer going to have sexual relations with anybody for the rest of her life, whether it's her husband or anybody else. She's taking such an oath, and if she takes such an oath, the reason for that is because, uh, as Rashi explains, the classic commentator, he explains that uh, she's taking such an oath because it's really difficult and painful to have sexual relations, and so therefore, um, uh, and so therefore, she's taking an oath to say that she's never going to have sexual relations again with anybody, whether it's with her husband or anybody else, and so in such a scenario, we also believe her that she took such an oath. And she should get divorced, and she could collect her ksuba money. That's what they said initially. Now, why is she believed? Is a good question. There's a there's a discussion um, in in where this mission is found in a different tractate. Why is she believed? According to some, she's believed on a biblical level that she's believed initially, and she's believed. Why would she be believed? Um, so perhaps the reason why she's believed is that she wouldn't make such a claim publicly in front of court. Uh, if she wasn't telling the truth, because all three of these scenarios are extremely embarrassing, so they wouldn't she wouldn't make something up like this just to get out of the marriage, and so therefore we believe her. Uh, but the discussion is: 
Is she believed on a biblical level or is she believed on a rabbinic level? The reason is because she's embarrassing herself through this, through all three claims, uh, whether it's because she was raped or whether it's because the husband's not having sexual relations with her or whether it's because it's difficult for her uh, to have to to engage in sexual relations. Um, and so all three are embarrassing. And so therefore, she's believed, the question is whether she's believed on a biblical level or on a rabbinic level. That's what they said initially. Chazru Lomar, however, they went back on this and they said, no, you know, we can't believe her. Why can't we believe her? If we believe her for any of these claims, again, there are no witnesses here. So if we believe her on any of these claims, she's trying to get out of the marriage. Uh, we can't believe her because maybe she's just making these claims. It's true that it's embarrassing. But once we say, once we make a rule that we'll believe her for these, for if she makes such a claim, so then it's just an easy way for her to get out. Let's say she uh, found interest in somebody else and she wants to get out of this marriage. She cannot initiate a, div- a divorce. So this is just a very easy way for her to lie, uh, to say that she uh, one of these three things occurred and forced the husband to give a, a divorce document. And then she can marry the person that she really fell in love with. And so we're concerned uh, that she's really making this up, even though it's embarrassing, but she's making this up so that she can marry somebody else. Uh, so what should she do if she really has these claims? If somebody says that uh, she was raped, we can only believe her if she brings proof, again, in general, in Torah law, uh, we do not believe people unless they have proof. They need to have proof unless there's there are various circumstances where we will believe somebody. Um, but you need to have, uh, depend, every situation is different, but uh, you need to have something going on your side. So in this case, uh, she'll only be believed if she has proof for it. Otherwise, we don't know if she's, maybe she's lying just so that she can marry somebody else. Or in the next case, Hashemayim b'ni levencha, if she makes the claim that he's never having sexual relations, so we say work, you know, we, we have to be proactive and work on the marriage. Uh, work on the marriage to discuss this with him and to figure out what exactly is going on, what's the problem, and uh, to make sure that uh, they are having sexual relations. That is case number two. Case number three, if she makes the claim that I'm never going to have sexual relations again with anybody, whether it's with my husband or with anybody else, so we say, a husband has the ability, something they refer to as mefer nedarim. The husband has the ability to uh, to um, annul his wife's uh, vows. He has the ability, if it impacts him, if, it, if in any way it impacts him, so then he has the right to, to annul her vows. Uh, he only has he has the ability to do it on the day that he finds out about it. But we tell we say basically annul the vow, and he has the ability to annul the vow halfway, that it only it will only impact him, things that impact him, i.e. the fact that she's making the claim that she can't have sexual relations, so he will annul that vow and say, you know what, that vow you, will not take place vis-a-vis me, the husband, even though you will be forbidden to everybody else, but you will be uh, mutares, you'll be permissible to me. And he has the ability to do that, to, to, to annul the vow, even if it's just halfway, even if it's only with, with regards to her husband, because this impacts her husband, we say to annul the vow, uh, because we don't, we can't believe her. Because if we believe her straight up, so then many women could use this as an out uh, to just get out of the marriage if they are interested in marrying somebody else. Okay, those are those are the three cases that's described in a different Mishnah. These are three cases that are described in a different Mishnah. Initially, we thought to believe her because why else would she be saying this? It's embarrassing to say this, even though we don't have any witnesses. 
In the end of the day, we say, well, you know what, if we believe her, so then she could, anybody could use this as, as a way out. And so therefore, you really need witnesses in the end of the day. It's, we cannot believe her because she could just use this as a way out to get out of the, out of the marriage. Okay, what does this have to do with our Mishnah? This has to do with our Mishnah because of the next question of the Gemara. The Gemara asks uh, as follows. When she made this oath that uh, she took this vow that she would never have sexual relations again with anybody else, why? who did she have in mind? Did she have in mind also her brother-in-law in the context of Yibam? Again, she's making this oath while she is still married. She's doing this while she's married. And presumably, well, well, we don't know. It's an open question of the Gemara. Does she have have in mind everybody, including her brother-in-law, that she'll never have sexual relations with her brother-in-law, which means she'll never do Yibam? Or, meaning if it's a situation where the husband passes away without children, or do we say that, no, the only people that she had in mind, the reason why she's taking this oath is so that she's able to convince her husband to say, listen, uh, I'm taking this oath because if we get divorced... Uh, don't think that I have anybody else in mind. No, I don't have anybody else in mind. I'm taking this oath that I'll never have sexual relations with anybody else. But if the husband dies, the only time she's forbidden right now and forever to her to her brother-in-law, to her husband's brother. She's not allowed to marry her husband's brother if they get divorced. Um, even even an ex-husband's brother, you're not allowed to marry him. Uh, so the only scenario where they're allowed to get married is if the husband actually dies. So maybe she didn't have the brother-in-law in mind. Maybe she only had people in mind where it would be permissible if they got divorced, to marry those people. And he, she's basically telling her husband, listen, I don't have anybody else in mind. I'm not going to have sexual relations with anybody else. But maybe she didn't have in, have in mind her brother-in-law. Did she have in mind her brother-in-law? Or did she not have in mind her brother-in-law when she took this uh, oath, when she took this vow? So there's two answers in the Gemara. And we're going to explain this Gemara according to Rashi. Others have a different understanding. But the Gemara says, Rav Amar Yavam Eno Kabal, Shmuel Amar Yavam Hareu Kabal. Essentially, Rav says that uh, she did not have in mind the brother-in-law. She didn't have in mind the brother-in-law, and so therefore she could do Yibam. Shmuel says that she did have in mind the brother-in-law. Um, she had in mind the brother-in-law, and she is forbidden, just like she's forbidden to her husband, she's also forbidden to her brother-in-law. That's what Shmuel says. Two opinions. It Does she have in mind her brother-in-law or not? Two opinions. Dispute between Rav and Shmuel. And now comes up our Mishnah. Amar Baye, Kavasa de Rav Mistavra. Rav makes more sense to say that she did not have in mind her brother-in-law. How do we know? From our Mishnah, from a different uh, ned there, a different uh, uh, oath that she takes, a different vow that she takes. Turning the page. So we could bring a proof from our Mishnah that when she takes certain oaths while she's currently married to her husband, she does not have in mind uh, the husband uh, of of a situation of Yibam, of her brother-in-law. She just doesn't have that in mind. It's not something which is in her mind. For example, if she takes an oath in our Mishnah that she will not get any benefit from her brother-in-law, we don't say that that's including Yibam. Um, if it's a regular case, if we don't know otherwise, we don't say that it's including a scenario of Yibam. She's not thinking about Yibam. She's not thinking about her husband dying without any children. She's just saying, I'm not getting any benefit from, from my brother-in-law with regards to everything else. Uh, but she's not thinking about Yibam. So if she's not thinking about Yibam, in that case, in general, while she's still married to her husband, she's not thinking about the brother-in-law. And so there's so, so too, in the case that we're discussing, uh, where she takes this uh, promise that she's never going to have sexual relations with anybody else to calm down her, her husband, that she's not, she's not interested in anybody else, 
It's not including a case of Yibam. It's not including a case of Yibam. She's not thinking about Yibam. And so if Yibam actually does occur, if her husband passes away without any children, maybe she could, in fact, do Yibam. So the Gemara says, no, maybe you can't bring a proof from our Mishnah. Essentially, the Gemara concludes, and this is the end of the chapter, the end of the parak. Uh, the Gemara says, wait a minute, why can we say as follows? Our Mishnah, which says that we uh, we say that she didn't have in mind to do Yibam, and therefore... Um, uh, she never, she never, she never had that uh, that in mind uh, when she uh, she says that uh, uh, she's not doesn't want to get any benefit from her brother-in-law. So she didn't have in mind ex- explicitly yibum, and so therefore, when she falls to yibum, when her husband passes away with any children, we say that you know what she took such an oath, uh, but it wasn't explicitly for yibum. It wasn't intentionally for yibum, and so therefore, uh, we won't we will we will force the brother-in-law to divorce her. We will force the brother-in-law to divorce her to make sure that. Um, because it's, she didn't do anything wrong. She 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 didn't have in mind that it was about Yibam. So she just said that, you know what, any pleasure that I get from him, uh, will I will not get any pleasure or any benefit from him. And so therefore they can't do Yibam. So we force him to do Chalitza because she didn't have in mind, she didn't do something wrong by having in mind Yibam. She didn't have in mind Yibam. When do we say that? Maybe that's only in the context where she already has kids. She has kids at the time that she takes this uh, promise. She makes this promise. However... Uh, what happens, unfortunately, tragically, the, the kids pass away, and then her husband passes away, and all of a sudden, there's a situation of Yibam here. So maybe only in that case do we say that she didn't have in mind the context of Yibam. But if it's a case where, uh, naturally, we see the trajectory is such where it could lead to Yibam because they didn't have kids at all, they never had kids, and she takes this promise, so maybe in that case she does have in mind Yibam. How do we know? So maybe you could differentiate between those two cases. And our mission is only discussing a case where she already had kids at the time that she took this oath. So it's clear that she didn't have in mind Yibam. So the Gemara rejects this and says that, no, if that's really the case, so then the mission should have differentiated. The, Gemara, the mission itself differentiates between whether it's uh, she takes this promise before or after the husband dies. And after the husband dies, it's clear that she has intention that uh, she's taking this oath to get out of Yibam. Uh, but if it's really depends on whether or not she had kids or not at the time of them of the uh, at the time of the uh, promise so then the Mishnah should have differentiated between that the fact that it doesn't shows us that it doesn't make a difference she in the end of the day we were showing how she really never has in mind uh, that when she says she shouldn't get benefit or uh, she uh, will never have sexual relations if she takes such a promise that she'll never have sexual relations with anybody again she's not really thinking about whether she has kids or doesn't have kids, she's not really thinking about Yibam. It's not what a person's thinking about. She's not thinking about that, oh, all of a sudden my husband's going to pass away and now, I, now uh, I, I'm in front of my brother-in-law to do Yibam or to do Chalitza. A person doesn't think about that at the time. And so that's what the, that's what the Gemara concludes. And, and so therefore, uh, when they, they take these promises, they're not having Yibam in mind at all. Okay, Hadran Allah Beishamai, we conclude. Mazel Tov, we conclude the 13th chapter. As we were moving along, the next chapter we'll be discussing the marriage of a deaf mute. There, we just have a few weeks on that, two, two, three weeks on that, and then we'll move on to the end of Yevamos, the very end of Yevamos, which discusses non-Yevamos topics, some very interesting topics about uh, 
about proofs of death, something we've discussed in the past, um, and we'll as we'll see that uh, as we go along through this entire mesechta, as we are almost near the the end, to the beginning of the end of this uh, of this mesechta of this tractate.